This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. For many of us, our relationship to work feels different now than any other time in the last decade. It goes beyond the upheaval of adjusting to remote work and then hybrid work. It's more than just how or where we do work. The shift is in how we think about why we work and what we want to get out of our jobs. This recalibration has, for some, taken the form of disengaging with their current roles. Think the great resignation and quiet quitting. For others, it's about thinking more deeply about what makes work meaningful, a topic that I explored on an episode last season with NeuroLeadership Institute's founder, Dr. David Rock, and on the last episode in our Ambition Diaries miniseries. Whether it's about redefining ambition, finding meaning, or creating a career that allows you to prioritize your life outside of work, all of those bigger picture issues can feel impossible to address when you feel in a state of constant crisis, which is, honestly, how the last two and a half years have felt. And while the pandemic disruptions to work may be for the most part in the rear view, we are now facing a recession and, as I covered on the last two episodes of the show, the possibility of layoffs. So how, amid all of this, can we take the long view of our careers? How can we plan for the future when the present still feels so uncertain? To help me answer those questions is Dory Clark. Dory has been a guest on the show before, and she's also a contributor to Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and other publications. She's been named the number one communication coach and one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. She teaches at both Duke and Columbia Business Schools and is the author of several books, including The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. So let's start you know, in the biggest way possible. And maybe it's kind of an obvious question, but why is long-term or like big picture thinking so hard to do right now? All right. I have two answers for you. One is we're human. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It is slightly inherently hard, but number two is that the pandemic made it even harder because over the course of the past two, two and a half years, however you want to time it, Long-term thinking really didn't feel possible for most people. It probably wasn't possible. You could try to plan two weeks out and the entire world would have changed. There's, you know, travel restrictions or, you know, all of a sudden you can't dine indoors, all these things that we took for granted as a way of life. And so the idea of formulating something even longer just seemed so impossible. We couldn't imagine what the world looked like, you know, a month in the future, much less a year or five years or 10 years. But this is the moment now as things thankfully are finally beginning to normalize where I really believe we need to put a stake in the ground and realize, okay, short-term thinking got us through what we needed to get through, but it's no way to live your entire life. So when we talk about, and we'll get kind of into more, I think, like what you mean by big picture, long-term thinking, because I think it probably means different things to different people. But let's maybe start with like the practical, because I'm sure... Myself, like many people, are like, oh, that sounds great. Sure, I'll do some deep thinking about some big things. Like, when the hell do I have the time to do that, right? So let's start there. Like, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, well, okay, let me figure out where to put this on my calendar. Do you have kind of advice for how people can kind of make space in their calendars, in their days for like this kind of bigger stepping back because things aren't as urgent 
sort of thinking when when still you feel really busy. Like maybe that uncertainty is not there anymore, but like we're still really busy. We're absolutely still busy. And the good news is that strategic thinking actually doesn't take that long. This is not so much about telling people, oh, you need to go on a retreat for six months or, oh, you need to spend 10 hours a week doing strategy work. This is not realistic. People don't have that kind of time. It wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't get done. But the really excellent news is that that's not really what's required. This is more about reframing the way that we think and finding small interstitial moments rather than just committing ourselves to try to sit at a desk with a blank mind or something like that. I did an interview a number of years ago with David Allen, who's the creator of the Getting Things Done methodology. And specifically, the interview was about innovation and breakthrough ideas. But I think that his advice actually really holds when it comes to strategy as well. He said, it's not that it takes so much time to have a breakthrough idea. He said, what it takes is space. And that is the thing that so many of us are lacking. Even if we carved out huge amounts of time, so often our mind would be racing, would be thinking about all the things on the to-do list, all the things we have to do. Even if you had 10 hours, you'd probably blow it because your mind is drawn to the trivialities. And so what we need to do is to begin to try to scrub some of that out. And that way, 10 minutes can actually be much more impactful than 10 hours if you were doing it the wrong way and letting yourself get dragged down. So how do you scrub it out then? Because I'm thinking, oh, okay, like maybe I could strategically block off, you know, this time in my calendar. But yeah, you're right. If I have and when I have any sort of time, I just think of all of the other things I'm supposed to do. So like, is there a way to get your mind in a right mindset to kind of think of these bigger picture, longer term things? Absolutely. So this is really a one-two punch. So the long-term way to think about this, sometimes people just feel so divorced from their goals, their ambitions. You know, you ask people like, so, you know, what do you, what do you do for fun? Or, you know, what are the things you do when you're not working? They give you this evil look and you're like, I don't have fun. There's (laughs) nothing besides work. I do chores when I'm not working. Yeah. Like my life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's like, we've kind of forgotten a piece of that. So I think part of it, honestly, is giving ourselves something worth thinking long-term thoughts about, you know, it's sort of reconnecting with like, all right, let's leave aside the, how do I do it? Or is it really practical? Or is it really possible? If things could happen, what would you like? You know, what are your professional dreams? What are your personal aspirations? Would you like to live abroad for a year? You know, are you really like, yeah, I'm going to make it to the C-suite or, you know, would you like to have uh, a creative side project? Maybe you want to write a novel or something. All of those things are actually dreams that if we can reconnect with them, honestly can, can be a spur for us to begin to, uh, to do the long-term thinking necessary to later plan how to get there. That's part one. But part two is actually clearing the deck a little bit from some of the really pernicious uh, stream of endless obligations we have now. And that's why pretty much the first third of my book, The Long Game, is about how to create more white space in your calendar and how to say no to more things. Because the truth is you can't get any long-term thinking done as long as you don't have breathing room. It doesn't take a huge amount of time, but it does take some time. And part of it is becoming a little bit merciless about challenging assumptions and pushing back on things. I mean, all the time, 
I get this. You probably do too, Kate, where someone says, oh, you know, I want to talk to you about this, blah, blah, blah. And their default, just because this is sort of how we're programmed, is, oh, can we grab a coffee? Oh, let's hop on the phone. And you have to be a little bit of the bad guy, um, but I'm willing to do it. I'll actually write back to people and I'll say, you know, I'm really trying to reduce phone calls right now. Would you mind emailing me your question? And I'm happy to answer it over email. And that basically saves me 25 minutes a pop. Totally. And that I want to get back to the kind of figuring out what you want, kind of like where to begin in the, the like figuring it out bit. But let's talk more about that, about the saying no to good opportunity, because you have a really interesting perspective on saying no, but saying no to like good opportunities too, right? Like I think we're kind of all, and especially journalists hate to say it, but like we get a million PR pitches and the longer you've been in it, the easier it is to be like, delete, delete, delete. And like, you can tell pretty quickly, like which ones are not good, but there are a lot of good things. And so, you know, you gave that tip of pushing it to email rather than a phone call. What's your perspective on saying, just like saying no to things more? Yeah, it's, it's really important. And I think what often makes it hard for people is we need to realize, you know, no, no one is sort of saying this explicitly, but your parameters need to change based on where you are in your career. When you are in the early days of your career, frankly, there's not really a big line of people waiting to do anything. There's not a line of people waiting to talk to you. There's not a line of people being like, oh, what does Kate have to say? You know, <laughs> yeah. if you've been at your job like a year, eh, there, you need to make things happen. And, you know, rather than deflect things because it, there, there's so little that's happening organically. So saying yes is usually a fantastic default. It can help you meet more people. It can help you get more experience, all the positive things. But by the time you're five years, 10 years, 20 years into your career, there's a lot of people that want things from you. You, you have employees, they want things. You have colleagues, you have people, for, you know, oh, your college roommate's cousin wants to pick your brain. And you need to learn to just continually tighten the parameters. And I would say even every couple of years, you need to start saying no to things you used to say yes to, because otherwise there won't be, in a very literal sense, you will run out of time and there's not enough time to do the great things that come your way. We all need to leave ourselves a little bit of slack you know, I mean, hopefully, if you're a responsible person, you have learned that if you're trying to get to an appointment, you should give yourself 20 extra minutes in case there's traffic. And yet we fail to do that systematically in our work week. We somehow assume everything's going to go perfectly and smoothly, and we leave ourselves absolutely no slack. And that's why so often we end up working nights, we end up working weekends, we end up being frenzied. Because, of course, things go wrong and we haven't allowed for that to happen. Yeah, that's so true. And I think I'm thinking about, you know, the advice that people get as they get further in their career about delegating their work. Like, you can't do it all. You need to delegate things. I think, you know, when, what you're talking about is sometimes it's a good opportunity to delegate opportunities, too. You know, I've definitely found myself, like you said, things you used to say yes to that now you say no to. That instead of, it feels so much better than just saying no to being like, well, not actually me, but these other people could be really good for it. And like kind of passing that opportunity along. Because as you say, when you're earlier in your career, you're maybe not getting as many opportunities. And like, you know, that dinner invite sounds really good to somebody five years in that sounds like an obligation to somebody 20 years in. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think that's a great frame. I think the key, and this is what you're saying implicitly, I just want to make it explicit, is that 
delegating opportunities is great if it actually really is an opportunity. So if it's a junior person that's like, oh my gosh, I get to go to dinner with a with a real life PR person. <laughs> like, oh, that's amazing. Then they'll be excited. It's wonderful. You have to be really careful in quote unquote delegating opportunities to your peers because they're going to be like, God, Kate. No thanks, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> why'd you lot. pass her off to me? <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Let's get back to the, like, you know, the the person listening and who's thinking, okay, this is great. Sure, I'll make more time on my calendar and I'll do all of those things or whatever for this vague, long-term, big-picture thing. Like, what is that? I don't even know where to where to begin with that. And I think, you know, you mentioned, like, what is your goal? Is it, like, getting to the C-suite? We've done episodes on this. Like, everybody's relationship to ambition and relationship to their future dreams and desires has changed a lot in the last couple of years. And and I think a lot of people right now is we're seeing with things like the great resignation of like, well, I don't know what I want. I want something other than this, but I don't know what that is. So if you're feeling that, you're like, I don't know what I want, where do you begin there? Yeah, I think a lot of people are in that place. And it's not a bad starting point, honestly. It might, it might feel sort of uh, amorphously angsty because so often in our culture, people sort of are demanding answers, you know, everybody from your friends to your mother-in-law to whatever, like, well, you know, tell us, what is it? What's next? What are you going to do? And it can feel really high pressure. And I think it often forces people to prematurely jump to something that may not be quite right. So I think living in that liminal space and being okay, letting it percolate is not a terrible thing. But that being said, I am a really big fan of creating hypotheses for yourself that you can test and trying to say, well, you know, I'm curious about this. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to get married to it yet, but I'm going to test it out and doing things like giving yourself assignments of, you know, I mean, let's pretend you want to change careers or something like that. Giving yourself assignments of reading, you know, like, okay, I'm going to read five books about this industry, you know, whether it's memoirs of people who've done the job or current sort of events. So I learned the lingo, you know, all of that. It could be a series of informational interviews. I mean, in my first book, Reinventing You, I profiled this woman who is, you know, surprise, surprise, she was a very unhappy lawyer. Are there happy <laughs> lawyers? I wonder. I've, I've only ever heard of unhappy lawyers. <laughs> yes, it does. It does seem like there's a few. But basically, the way she kept herself sane was that she would have multiple times a week these lunch meetings with people. And specifically, they were kind of informational interviews, but, you know, she'd take them out to lunch. And it was, it was almost like her chance to dream because she would say, tell me about your job. Tell me about your life. What do you like? What do you not like? And it was fun for her. It was interesting. And it let her kind of test drive things. So I think that's part of, you know, letting things brew and percolate. Another, which I'm a really big fan of, honestly, is hearkening back to your past because one of the truest ways of telling what you actually are interested in is thinking about the times in your life when you, when you were not being paid, you were just doing things because you liked them. And that may be, you know, when you were 10 years old, it might be maybe you had some free time in, you know, after high school graduation or, you know, whatever it was. But like, literally, what are you doing? Some people, you know, I wish it was me. 
but like Bill Gates would program computers for fun. Uh, it's a very lucrative form of fun. Sadly, that was not my passion, but I would write stories, you know, and it's not that there's a one for one correlation, but it begins to, to give you some hints like, oh, I wonder if there's a way that I could incorporate writing more into what I do. And I think that's a really useful strand to follow. As you're talking, it's reminding me of a conversation that I had this weekend when I went out with a friend and we came up with a, what I think is a like million dollar idea, which probably isn't, but he's like, oh, you always have such great ideas. Like you've always been a person that has such great ideas. And I'm like, not really. Like I don't identify myself as that way. And I said, it's because we're, I'm having a great conversation and that doesn't happen as much anymore. Right. Like, especially I work remotely, like a lot of my interactions are transactional on Zoom. You know, they're meetings, they're pre-planned agendas. That kind of thing that you're talking about, about the, the lawyer that took somebody out to lunch and kind of gave herself that space to dream. How do you facilitate kind of conversations without maybe a, a clear agenda where like ideas can happen without overburdening people's calendars, right? Because we're, we just talked about how, you know, everybody has so many meetings and you need to, to cut down on it and block and give yourself back some free time. But really some of this like dreaming and these big picture thinking ideas come from uh, unplanned serendipitous conversations. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. And you're exactly right. I mean, that is, that is the thing that suffered uh, probably the most during COVID. And it is, um, perhaps uh, not unrelated, that there has been so much dissatisfaction uh, professionally and turnover and people leaving since then. You know, this, the frisson of people connecting and being able to share ideas is really powerful. So, you know, certainly to some extent that is coming back and, you know, that's great. Um, depending on where you live, there are opportunities depending where you work, you know, you may be in the office a little bit, um, but you're exactly right. There is less of it. And so one of the, the drums that I like to beat a lot in my work, frankly, is the importance of becoming a host and a convener, because most people, frankly, don't think of themselves that way. They kind of think, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were more events I could go to? Or wouldn't it be great if someone would invite me to an event? And I mean, yes, it would. But at a certain point, you got to step up and it's probably not going to happen, honestly, because so many people just, frankly, they, it hasn't occurred to them or they're too busy or they don't feel empowered to do something like that. But it's actually so easy to organize things and other people appreciate it so much. You know, I'm not saying start by trying to invite a bunch of billionaires, right? I'm saying like, start with your friends or start by inviting a friend and asking each friend, hey, bring your friend. You know, start with something manageable. Literally two nights ago, I had a cocktail gathering and, you know, I did it at a, at a restaurant like a block from my house. I knew that it would be sort of easy and chill and people could come up and get seating even if they were late. And it was two people I had met before and three people I hadn't, but everybody had a great time. So it's, it's not that hard and people will actually be really grateful if you do it. That's such great advice. And I, I remember you you mentioned that story or a similar story before about when you had first moved to New York and you didn't know anybody and and you were like, how do I make friends? And it's like, well, just invite the people that you've kind of talked to over. And if they come, they come. If they don't come, they don't come. Like, you know, what do you have to lose sort of thing? And like, people will talk and like, maybe 
you know, an idea will come out of it. Maybe a new friend will come out of it. Maybe like something will come out of it. I think, I think you're exactly right. Cause we get like so stuck in our routines, like hoping that somebody will do the thing for us. And it's like, wait a second, you can just do the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we have these, you know, sort of blocks sometimes where we feel like, oh, well, you know, what if no one comes? Or, you know, what if they feel, you know, weird or bad that I invited them? But the, I mean, frankly, just just flip it around. You know, if you don't, if someone invited you, A, you if you reasonably like them, it probably would feel good that they invited you. And B, People can always say no. It's really not that hard if somebody invites you to something to be like, oh, sorry, I have plans that night. Thanks anyway. Like that yeah. you're not putting pressure on them. <laughs> yeah. And if they come, then chances are they like you because they came. You know, yeah. They're not going to come if they don't like you. You know, and kind of relatedly to like thinking differently about what you could possibly do, you have an, an interesting perspective and you've, you've written about it before about building kind of a portfolio career. Can you explain what that means and kind of how you go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So a portfolio career basically means that you make your money from doing a variety of different things. And I became obsessed with this earlier in my career of necessity because my very first job was working as a newspaper reporter and I got laid off. Um, I got laid off actually at a very inauspicious time because it was Monday, September 10th, 2001. Uh, so my, oh my job search <laughs> prospects were a little grim for a while. And, you know, it took me a while to build up to a portfolio career, but I was very keen on this idea of, of not wanting to be that vulnerable again, frankly. If you're making all of your money from one place, that's nice as long as you have that place. But the minute it gets cut off, I mean, these people, they gave me four days of severance pay. That's insane. <laughs> I've never heard of only four days. Yeah, because I had worked I had worked the Monday. So they're like, here's a week's pay. Here you go. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Anyway, even if you have a day job and even if it feels secure to you, one of the things that I really advise people to do is to start something on the side. I know I don't mean be an Uber driver, although if that is your passion, by all means, but you know, there's, there's a variety of things that people can do. And usually the way to find it is to just think like, what do your friends organically come to you about? There's usually something, right? Like, okay, you have such a great design sensibility. Will you go shopping with me? Or, you know, oh, hey, Kate, I'm applying for a new job. Um, could you look at my resume? People are usually asking favors of you. And you can start charging for that. I don't mean charge your friends, no. I mean charge friends of your friends. You could actually say, you know what? You know, I'm happy to help you with that. By the way, I'm thinking of starting a little thing on the side, helping people with their resumes. If you have friends who need it, tell them about me. It can be super low key, but those are the things that give you freedom. There's a guy I wrote about in my book, Entrepreneurial You, named Pat Flynn, who worked at an architecture firm in 2008. This was not a great time to work at an architecture firm. He got laid off, lost his job, but he had started a side project where he had written an ebook about how to pass a certain architecture exam. And it turned out that within a few months, because everybody was really trying to pass this architecture exam, he was making more money from the sale of the ebook than he did with his day job. And it enabled him to be okay when he lost his, his job and his previous uh, only source of income. 
we did an episode recently about like how to prepare for recession and possible layoffs. And it was very similar advice of kind of thinking about like the, the different avenues that you can do, the different kind of, for lack of a better word, side hustles, the things that people come to you for. And I think it's a mindset that freelancers are taught. Like the time that I was freelancing, I remember I got that kind of same advice, like diversify your portfolio, like don't put all of your eggs in one basket, which is kind of a a common practice for freelancers, right? But if you have a full-time salary job, you're probably not thinking that way. But it's a good, as you say, in these times in case you get laid off. But I think probably also good, right, if if you're looking for what is that next thing? Like, is it a career change and, and where can that come from? Yeah, 100%. I mean, in fact, it can lead in really surprising ways to your next opportunity. There was a guy I profiled in one of my books named Lenny Achan. And just for fun, he got really into the idea of creating smartphone apps. So he learned how to do it. He launched a couple of apps on the side. And he was a nurse. And it turned out that when his boss found out that he had this interest and this proficiency in creating these apps, he asked Lenny to run social media for the hospital. And Lenny did such a good job doing it. Within a few months, he promoted him to be the communications director for the entire hospital, which was an amazing promotion and an amazing breakthrough that he never organically would have had access to, if not for this self-directed side project. That's amazing. And that's also like, if he was like, I'm a nurse and I want to become a communications director, all of the advice would have been like, well, you need to do this and this and this and this. And it's like, or you can do the thing you're already doing, you know, and, and get there that way. Because the normal career path would have been going back to school and, and doing extra, you know, education and all of that. But you've actually set me up perfectly for my next question, which was, why, you know, managers should care about this kind of thing. Like if you are a manager listening to this, why should you care or want to encourage your employees to do this kind of long-term career planning, big picture thinking, things that could potentially, you know, are outside of the realm of what their job is? So the short answer is that in the past, a lot of managers hesitated to have these kind of long-term career discussions with people because they were afraid of what they'd hear. And they were afraid that somehow they might be encouraging their employees to leave or to go to greener pastures or say, oh gosh, actually, yeah, I do kind of hate it here. <laughs> and so they would they would just stay away from it. But the truth is, I think the Great Resignation has shown us uh, they might leave anyway. And so if you can be the person that is thoughtful, supportive, gives them advice, gives them opportunities that makes it actually much more likely that they will stay. They may stay because they are loyal to you, because they appreciate the work you're doing. They may stay because you are continuing to give them development opportunities that put them in the direction of where they want to go. Are they going to stay forever? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe not, but they probably wouldn't stay forever anyway. And they may stay a lot longer if you say, you know what, I see where you want to go. Let's carve out a path And I will keep giving you incremental opportunities so that you're actually coming a lot closer to where you want to be. And, you know, to your example, your employee could end up fulfilling a need you never thought they could, you know, moving from, you know, nursing to communications and with and staying within the organization. Absolutely. How do you then as a manager encourage it? It's kind of not enough to say like, you know what, you should do some bigger picture thinking. You should think more long-term about your career. Set aside 15 minutes a week to do that. You know, like how do you actually encourage it to, to take place? Are there questions you can ask? Is it a matter of like checking in more frequently or is there something else you can do? It's a both and kind of situation. I mean, there, there are some people that just 
don't want to be that strategic. No, they're just not going to go there. And, you know, that's all right. But for people who lean in that direction, it really resonates and makes a big impact if you can help them uh, draw that out of themselves. And so just actually taking the time to ask questions like, where, you know, where do you see yourself in a few years? And even more critically, how can we, you know, you as the manager and the company, how can we help you get there? What's interesting to you? What do you want to learn? What experiences do you want to have? Those are amazing questions and really lead to a kind of collaborative vision of that future path. Yeah. Dory, thank you so much for being here. This was very helpful, very inspiring to kind of think longer term, get out of this day-to-day crisis mode and, and think bigger picture. Thank you so much. Kate, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. What are your long-term goals? Email us at podcasts at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. And don't forget to listen to our special four-part miniseries, Ambition Diaries, in this feed. You can also head to fastcompany.com slash ambition hyphen diaries for photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters in the series. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres.